So thank you so much for coming out this morning, Joey. Well, turn your Bibles to Luke 15 if you're not already there, and it's also printed the passage we're looking at this morning in your worship folder. But I want to tell you, first off, that, um, you know, used to do a lot of ministry in a particular East Asian country, and often when we would do our evangelism and our church planting, it was a common practice of ours to actually throw a lot of birthday parties. And these aren't the traditional birthday parties that you're thinking of. In fact, we'd have multiple birthday parties on the same day. And many of our Asian friends loved parties to begin with, so this was a wonderful thing to do. But once somebody would put their faith in Jesus Christ for salvation, we would have a party to celebrate. It had to be small. It had to be in a discreet location because we were working underground in a country that was very dangerous to be doing evangelism. But it didn't matter. People were really excited and joyful about their new salvation in Christ and wanting to celebrate. And so we would actually go out and get a cake or something like it because this country didn't really have cakes like we would know cakes. But it didn't matter. And then we would share birthday celebration traditions with people of a different culture. And then we'd all sing the American happy birthday song, which they would all know anyway for some reason. But we would also take the opportunity to talk about the new birth and what it is we're really celebrating, being born into the family of God. And we would specifically actually read the passage that we're looking at today in Luke 15, this particular passage that we're talking about. And because it talks about joy in salvation, the joy in heaven, the joy of God, the joy of the angels, the joy of Christians over just one sinner who repents and comes to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And so not only would it we have the birthday party, but then the birthday party would be followed by a baptism. And usually you have to use hotel room tubs or go find a blow-up pool for a kid somewhere. But we would do that, and then the most prized possession of all, after a person would profess faith in Christ, they would get their first Bible. And our national partners would have that all set up, all prepared. We, as the Americans, just got to be a part of the celebration and the joy. And it was a wonderful opportunity to begin the discipleship process. And it's a great joy to see people returning to God their creator that they've left, but now returning to him as God their redeemer in Jesus Christ. In our passage this morning, if you just take a look at it briefly, count the time, number of times the word joy appears in this passage. You'll see it occurs five times. Verse 5, verse 6, verse 7, verse 9, verse 10. And Luke assumes that we live for this great joy, too, that he does. You know, just last week when we were in Luke chapter 14, we learned a, a, about God's generosity, well, a couple weeks ago in his salvation, in Luke 14, 23, where it says, the master said to the servant, go out into the highways and along the hedges and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled, that the banquet hall may be filled. And then last week, we looked at Luke 14, 35, and after these very, very stiff demands on what it means to follow Jesus, Jesus ends with this invitation, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Well, in Luke 15, apparently, a lot of these people have been given ears to hear and to repent, and so we read, in starting in Luke 15, 
Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to him, that is to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that's lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I have lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. You know, there are many sinners in this world. We used to be part of that group. They're all lost. Some of them will repent and they'll become found sinners. And what we're going to learn this morning is that we share in God's joy by using his gospel to go out and search and find these sinners who will repent. Luke would have the church imitate Jesus in pursuing sinners for their joy, their joy, our joy, the church's joy, heaven's joy. And reminds, and he records these parables with three basic evangelism truths that we're going to look at today. In verses 1 to 3 is that many sinners will be attracted to Jesus and his gospel. Sometimes we think they aren't. Especially when Jesus gives words like he did last week that we looked at. And then the second basic evangelism truth in verses 4 to 7 is there's going to be great joy for all in finding the repentant. And the third basic gospel evangelistic truth is there's great joy is the outcome of diligent searching. That's how you get it, diligent searching. Now, all three, there are actually three parables in the section. It goes on, of course, to the the famous one, the parable of the prodigal son. But that's a long one, and we're going to save that one for next time. And it has its own unique significance to it. And then some of you might be familiar with another parable that's similar in Matthew 18 called the parable of the stray sheep. And uh, the image is similar, but the story details and the occasion are very different, and the purpose of Jesus in telling that story is quite different than here as recorded in Luke. In Matthew's account of that issue, Jesus is talking about wayward believers. In this particular parable and episode in Luke, he's talking about going after sinners for salvation. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. So the first basic truth about evangelism is that many sinners are going to be attracted to Jesus and the gospel. I mean, what we see here in verse 1 is we got sinners of the world unite in flocking to Jesus. But in verses 2 and 3, the self-righteous religious people, who really aren't righteous, um, despise this movement of sinners that's going on around the world. And so we read in verse 1, now the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to hear him. This is a very important verse to interpret the whole section. It's the header. It's the title, if you will. Luke, with great irony, says all. Do you notice that? They're all going after Jesus. These despised tax collectors from the Jewish people, these ignored immoral sinners, flagrant sinners, sexual sinners, they're habitually, in the, in the original language it makes it clear, they're habitually coming to Jesus. They're coming out to see him, coming out to learn about him, 
even after that demanding call in chapter 14. It's amazing. You can go back and reread it on your own. But maybe some from that crowd, when Jesus gave that speech, heard it and they were inspired by his demand, not turned away from it, that Jesus must have first priority in our life and everything else in our life has to be a distant second. And so we read, for example, in verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Well, Luke's implying that this is what sinners often do. Even in his day when he wrote the gospel account, even in our day, they flock to Jesus. Why? Because they want to repent before God and receive the forgiveness and new life that he offers. Luke's implying that such sinners are often hated by the religious hypocrites, but they're quite often attracted to Jesus. Although, when you think about it, they should actually be more afraid of Jesus than the religious hypocrites, because the contrast is you see real holiness in Jesus, and you just see a show of holiness in religious hypocrites. So, when this happens, we know that God's in work work at these people if they're coming to Jesus like this, in spite of their fear, And so then we read in verses 2 and 3, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and he eats with them. We're reminded of Luke chapter 5, when Matthew, the tax collector, was called and saved at the very beginning of the gospel, sort of a template as we've been going through the gospel of Luke. And there we read, Levi gave a big reception for him, Jesus, in his house, And there was a great crowd of tax gatherers and other people who were reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with the tax gatherers and sinners? And Jesus answered and said to them, It's not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I haven't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You see, the Pharisees and the scribes grumble yet again in this passage in Luke's episode. They never give up their grumblings. To them, you know, it's disgusting that a rabbi would have a following of people like them. To these religious hypocrites, it's repulsive that a rabbi would fellowship, share meals even, and who knows, maybe Jesus even organized these parties. That would be terrible. You know, most Pharisees and scribes didn't understand what the Bible really taught about separation from sinners. It didn't teach, like they would often do, that they just sort of huddle around together and congratulate each other on their spirituality. That's not what it means. They missed the fact, too, that Jesus isn't participating in all these sinful activities of these people, and he's not even accepting their lifestyles, not even tacitly. He would confront them to their face. That's possible to do at the same time, that your intimate in eating and drinking with these types of people. It's possible to hang out with people like that and be very direct with the gospel and its demands if one thing is true. If we love people, two key words, if we really love people like Jesus did, it's very possible to do that. But the Pharisees and scribes, they hadn't figured that out. And so this association with sinners is just too close of an association for these religious leaders to accept because of their self-righteousness. They're not really truly righteous by the grace of God, as we know in the story. Well, Jesus is looking for the responsive 
among sinners. That's really key to understand. I mean, that's why he has these parties. It's not just so he can have a fun time that night. Right? He's out looking for people. Now, surely there were many other people, many other sinners, who loved their sin and hated Jesus and avoided him or left him. They didn't make it into the story. But they aren't the focus here. But it's the other kind of sinner. It's the one who listens to Jesus, heard about Jesus, and is humble and challenged by who he is and want to find out more. And maybe, maybe, maybe I can be forgiven. These are the people that Jesus was seeking out. That those who would repent and put their faith in him and so bring God and heaven great joy. The Pharisees and the scribes didn't know who he was really or why he came. And it's their own fault because they're just not paying attention. They have all these ideas in their head, but if they would just drop them and listen to what Jesus actually said, they might learn something. And so he tells these following parables to state exactly who he is and why he came. You know, it's true, many sinners will be attracted to Jesus and the gospel. That's a basic evangelism truth. And sometimes we think that, you know, it's too hard for the people to make that jump, or they're just too into their sinful lifestyles. There's no possible way that Jesus could be attractive to them. I don't know how to make Jesus attractive to me. But we don't have to do it. All we need to do is be with people, love them, and share with them who Jesus is. Don't run and hide from people like this. Don't keep them at arm's length. I mean, you know who they are. They live in your neighborhood. Their kids play with your kids. Their grandkids play with your grandkids. You work with many of them. You know, so would you be their friend? Even for a week? How about just for a meal? You know, people are starving for friendships today. For so many reasons in our present culture. And a lot of people don't have anyone who befriends them. Well, the people who love people the best are Christians. You and me. So let's go make some new friends with these people and share God's joy. Use his gospel to search out who these people might be that God would call to himself. Well, the second basic truth is there's great joy for everybody involved in finding the repentance. And so these two parables are told. Now, these parables are in parallel relationship, which means that basically both stories are telling the same thing, the same truth. There's a little bit of a nuanced difference. The first parable emphasizes this joy that's just all around. The second parable emphasizes the effort that it takes to get to that point. Now, they both have both aspects, of course, but that's a little bit of the difference. So we have this parable of the lost sheep first, and the shepherd looking for his lost sheep, and then he finds them, and he rejoices in verses 5 and 6, and then we get the interpretation of heaven rejoicing. And so as the story begins, the shepherd goes out and looks for them. Verses 4, 3 and 4. So he told them this parable. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that's lost until he finds it? So Jesus <clears throat> tells this parable against these Pharisees and scribes who are grumbling mainly. Right? But why does he do that? Jesus starts off by offending the religious leaders by telling the story. I mean, why not? Offending self-righteous people is a lot of fun. I mean, that's one of Jesus' favorite pastimes. Have you noticed that as you read through this? 
And so he makes them out in his parable to be these lowly shepherds. They thought they were really great people, and he calls them shepherds in his story. Well, that's how Jesus likes to talk about himself often, too. And it's something, really, that they should be doing, like he's doing. And so he describes a very normal situation. You know, an average flock of sheep at the time would be 100 to 200 sheep. Sheep get lost on occasion. That's the nature of sheep. And a shepherd counts the flock before he's going to settle in for the night. And at times, there's going to be some missing. And then you've got to go find them. And just like sheep, people have this prone. They're prone to wander. And to be theological about it here, they're, they're prone to wander in their sin, in their sin, farther and farther away from God, who is their creator and shepherd. And so the shepherd in our story leaves the rest of the flock, the 99, 100, out of the 100, just to go find that one that's missing. The shepherd's loss of one sheep is pretty significant, actually. It may not sound significant to you. I don't know how you count significance. But it would cost a lot of money to lose one, also a lot of pride, you know, because you lost one. And it would dishonor your family. And, of course, he doesn't leave the 99 just sitting there by himself. You know, he has a whole group of people that work with him. And they're being well cared for by hired helpers, so it'll be safe and sound while he goes out. The point is, not that he's leaving the 99, but the point is the one who's lost, that he goes out with special concern. And so we can just jump to the point, which is pretty obvious. Um, I mean, th these are, like, the simplest parables to, to apply in our lives. Is is like, so how do we look upon lost people? You know, with disdain like Pharisees and scribes or with compassion like Jesus? With an attitude of, ah, it's only one. It's no big loss like the Pharisees and scribes. Or with trying to maintain the pride and the honor of the church and do something about it and go out and find these people. Most likely, we pass this little test. But, you know, sometimes we need a little reminder like that, and it's helpful, isn't it, to go back and read over very familiar passages of Scripture to remind ourselves and to open our hearts again to some of these basic truths that we're called to be doing. Well, the shepherd finds his lost sheep, and he rejoices in verses 5 to 6. And it says, And when he had found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. So there's this double rejoicing, and we notice in our text, upon finding the sheep, and then returning to the community. Because when you go out to find the sheep that's missing, it wouldn't be uncommon to find nothing. Or to find it injured, or to find the sheep, just a carcass left. You know, because sheep, sheep lie down when they're lost, because of fear. They don't return on their own, and they have to be carried back. It's very similar to people. I mean, think about the people you know. It's not uncommon to find sinful people unrepentant. I mean, that, that's pretty common. And even when they're severely sin-damaged themselves because of the way they've chosen to live their lives, and they've destroyed their own lives, but they're still unrepent, and many of, unrepentant, and so many, of course, will die in their rebellion, and they, they refuse the offer of the shepherd. But on the other hand, it's also not uncommon to find sinful people afraid and confused. I mean, they're still here, and they need help to find God when it's offered to get out of their bewilderment and out of their situation. That's why we need to go find people, because people aren't going to find God on their own. 
They're not going to come to Jesus on their own. So again, the application is really easy. We need to go look for them and give them the gospel that will save their souls and bring them then into the repentance community, which is who we are as a church. We're sinners saved by grace, the grace of God. So keep up the good work, my friends. There's a lot of people to go out and look for some more. Well, next, the shepherd then shares the joy all around. I mean, he doesn't just keep it to himself. He invites his friends and neighbors. Jesus is stressing the joys he's telling this parable because, you see, who doesn't have joy in this story? The Pharisees and the scribes. So he's putting it in their face. And so joy comes out and keeps coming out. And this is what we do, too, when we find sinners who repent. We share the joy with the whole church. We say things like, hey, look, let me introduce you to my new friend, Bob. He just became a Christian. Bob, tell my friend Zach how you came to know Jesus. Tell us the story. And then Bob tells the story about how he came to know Jesus. That's how it works. And then guess what happens? Bob's excited, joyful. I'm joyful. Zach's joyful. And we're all joyful about the story. Of course, there's more to the story because Jesus is the Son of God and he shares the joy with heaven. And that's why we have what we have in verse 7. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And here's the application stated by Jesus himself. He makes it very clear that he is pleasing to God. He is pleasing <clears throat> to the court of heaven by his behavior and his mission. Not those Pharisees and scribes. They're supposedly the religious leaders of the people. He's bringing great joy to the population of heaven by associating with sinful people who will repent. He's bringing great joy to heaven. There's great joy over the conversion of even one person. There's joy for the person. Oh my goodness, you remember when the burden of sin was lifted off your soul? What joy came in and replaced it? There's joy by our Savior, Jesus Christ. There's joy that God shares in his purposes. There's joy in heaven. The angels and the saints delighting themselves. There's joy for the whole church. We all get to celebrate what God's doing. You know, the, he points out, Jesus does in his application in verse 7, I like irony, and here it is again, the 99 righteous persons. It's a comment of extreme irony on the part of Jesus. You see, because on the one hand, He's indicating that the Pharisees and the scribes are self-righteous. And they don't even really see their own need for repentance. And that we're all unrighteous in our natural state. And the only way you're going to gain a righteousness is by putting your faith in Jesus Christ. Maybe the sarcasm will help them. Maybe. On the other hand, Jesus is also telling them that they aren't bringing joy to heaven just because they don't sin as much or sin as grievously as these other people. So in relative terms, they might be righteous, at least they think they are, but that doesn't bring any joy to heaven. By Jesus pointing out these 99 righteous persons, Jesus is telling them that, you know, they're really not bringing joy to heaven because they're not bringing any sinners to repentance. They're too busy self-congratulating each other on how great they are. Again, the application is easy. Think about how much joy we bring to heaven when we do evangelism. There's great joy for all in finding the repentant. Notice Luke's consistent focus on this repentance. In verse 7, it comes up twice. In verse 10, again, we see it. Repentance is a prerequisite for 
salvation, repentance and faith go together, the part of conversion. Conversion involves both aspects. And the gospel that we actually use to find sinful people is this gospel. And so when we talk about repentance, we're talking about people coming to the point where the Spirit's worked on them, where they actually feel the burden of their sin, and they want it relieved. They want it, and they renounce it, and they commit to turn away from it and to walk in obedience to Christ. Faith, which happens at the same time, is trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, for eternal life because of his death on the cross and his resurrection. It's finally saying that I can't trust myself to save myself. It's not going to work at the end of the day when I stand before God in judgment. I can't rely on myself. I can't rely on my religious works or the the deeds I did even. It's not going to be enough. I need a Savior who's so much larger than me. And so it involves both this repentance and faith. And so don't forget about this part about repentance. It's all too common these days because we need both repentance and faith. It's part of what conversion is. Now, there are also two common misconceptions of the parable of the lost sheep that I want to address, clear up, hopefully, for you. So sometimes it's said that God and Jesus, you know, people, maybe you run to people like this too, is that they'll read this parable, and they talk as if somehow Jesus takes more delight in the unsaved than he takes delight in the church. And somehow we're supposed to do the same thing. But that's a false dichotomy that's set up, a choice that you don't have to make, because people get saved for the church. Jesus purchased the church and cares for the church, and that's where his delight is. So the focus on our passage is not abandonment, it's enlargement. That's the focus of the passage. Jesus delights in bringing more into the true fold of God. Another common misconception is that Jesus delights in this passage, and I've had good friends who thought this, that Jesus just delights in sinners as sinners, and that there's no discrimination. But that's not the case. In our storyline and in context, the delight is in sinners who repent of their sin. That's who he delights in, not in those who don't. There's a purpose in which Jesus associates with people. And it's not just the association. I mean, you think about it. I mean, the eternal Son of God coming from glory to here, we may think this is a cool place to live, but I don't think somebody who's lived in eternal glory thinks this is the greatest place. And so it's not that pleasant to even hang out with people that are living an unpleasant life. But you see, even after a while, those who don't repent, Jesus would leave them alone. God's wrath, not his love, would remain upon them eventually. But we also think about Jesus' own later self-designation. He calls himself the good shepherd over against all these bad shepherds. John 10, I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep, which are not of this fold, and I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they shall become one flock with, with one shepherd. The Lord Jesus Christ ultimately and and instrumentally through the Holy Spirit, through the gospel-proclaiming church, will and still does bring lost sheep who will hear the gospel and respond. He does. And that's our role. We share God's joy using his gospel to search out and find these sinners who will repent. 
Well, the third basic evangelism truth is that this great joy will be the outcome of diligent searching. In other words, it, do, it just doesn't happen. I mean, very few things just sort of happen. I mean, we have to put effort into that. And that's what we learn in this next parable, this parallel parable, with a little more emphasis on the search effort, the parable of the lost coin. And so in verses 8 to 9, we have this woman searching for her lost coin. She finds it, she rejoices. And then we get the same kind of conclusion in verse 10, the joy of heaven over the sinners who repent. And so we read then, or what woman having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me for I found the coin that I had lost. So in our story, sort of a background, this woman has 10 silver drachmas, you might say in your, in your Bible, coins, each worth probably about a day's worth of wages, working for the day, getting paid at the end, each one's worth about that amount. It's been suggested they, they actually might be a part of like a headpiece um, or, or even contain her dowry. We don't know if all, is all the money she had, we don't know if it's a dowry thing, um, or why this particular coin is special to her in this parable, but what we do know is that she lost one of them, most likely it's a one-room home with low light, one small window, and a low doorway, and it would have been a hard-packed earthen floor full of dust and debris that would naturally collect. So, you know, coins at that time weren't circular like our coins, so they're not going to bounce and roll, okay? Uh, it wouldn't have gone very far, but it had gone out of her sight regardless, and so she lights a lamp to get more light and then begins sweeping to find it, to hear the sound of that coin and then pull it out of the dust or dirt pile. So eventually she finds it, and she's all excited about finding this. It's very valuable. And then proceeds to call together her girlfriends and neighbors and share the joy with them, and likely they all rejoice as we would too with her and with our friends if they had these kind of situations in their life. So the, the parallel conclusion is very similar. The joy of heaven over one sinner who repents. So just so I tell you, there's joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So Jesus keeps telling these parables, and as we'll learn next week, the final parable on prodigal son, that is just going to drive it really hard and really at home on these Pharisees and scribes. But at the same time, we are greatly encouraged. We all love the parable of the prodigal son because we see ourselves in it. Well, there's great joy here in the heavenly court that's mentioned now that the angels are even specified, even over one sinner who repents. It's great joy. And it only comes about by diligent search searching. We shouldn't be hesitant to seek out the lost. We should look hard for people, for sinful people who will repent. The parable of the lost coin is always going to remind me of a friend named Kate who started a ministry called Lost Coin. And I remember when she started this ministry about 25 years ago. We both came from the same church in Illinois. And Linda and I knew her parents really, really well and ministered with them. And Kate was their only daughter. And she had just finished up her voice major at a prestigious college. And she felt called to take a year and minister short term on a missions trip in Athens, Greece, with a certain agent, mission agency. So, so far, so good. I mean, that's what her parents had worked hard to teach her, was missions 
you know, missions, missions, missions. I had missionaries in their homes. Went on mission trips. Always talking about missions, which is a good thing. You should always talk about missions. Then the news broke while she's, while she's over there, okay? Kate was going to stay in Athens for the long term. And on top of this, she wanted to minister the gospel to the street prostitutes of Athens. And she would call it Lost Coin Ministries. So now we have a 22-year-old single American woman, brand new to missions, working on the streets of Athens, sharing Christ and his hope with international teens. That's awesome, isn't it? I think it's great. But you know what? Not everybody thought it was great. Her parents embraced her calling, although, as you can imagine, being a parent, that's a lot to swallow on one phone conversation. So it took a lot of prayer. They went over and visited. A lot of dialogue. But sadly, that's not the hard part of the story. Sadly, many Christians didn't think Kate or anyone, but especially their friend's daughter, should be spending her life in this way. Read, wasting her life in this way. She just graduated with voice from a prestigious college. Wasting her life, throwing it away. These are like, imagine this, you're the parent and your daughter's doing this, and then all your friends who are part of your church and your life for, for what, 10, 15, 20, 30 years? Now all of a sudden, turn on you. You know, and so they're thinking these friends, supposedly of our parents and the story, they think, well, ministering to street prostitutes in Athens, that's too dangerous. These are too sinful of sinners. Can't she find less sinful sinners? I mean, they say dumb things like that. That's what people do when they don't know what to say. So this didn't take Kate by surprise, but it really took her parents by surprise. And they were shocked at their friend's judgmentalism and how they really reflected the Pharisees in this passage that we're looking at this morning. And here's the thing is that it wasn't like just at the beginning. Like the friends are shocked too. They don't know what to say. You know, they think it's sympathetic maybe to say something like, well, they shouldn't really be doing, she shouldn't be doing that. But the point is it didn't end. It persisted for years in this church. We saw it firsthand, the ugliness of it, the unbelievable opposition to the gospel going forward and God's calling on this young woman's life and the parent, that they would cause pain in these parents' lives that they said were their friends. Unbelievable. Well, those people missed it. What did they miss? They miss joy. They miss the joy of seeing people saved, searched for diligently by one of their own people they know to come to Christ. Oh, by the way, Kate's still in Athens. She's married now, has a lot of kids. And, uh, you know, now that enough time has passed, all those other people, guess what they, they decided to switch sides again, you know, because they always go for the team that's winning. You know, so they just switch around. So now they're on her side. I think some of them have grown up. But, you know, and it just goes to prove what Matthew and Luke both record in different ways. And Jesus said when he was attacked for his approach to sinful people, well, 
Jesus said, wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. In Luke, wisdom is vindicated by her children, by the result. So Kate's friend still is, wonderful ministry, amazing person. Well, this passage teaches us that God searches, Jesus searches, the apostles search, the church has been searching for centuries, and we, in this church, we keep searching. As one commentator said, evangelism here in Luke 15 is grounded in the joy of recovery. I like how he says that. Evangelism is grounded in the joy of recovery. That's really good. You know, so we don't, we don't sit around hoping that lost sheep are going to find their way back because they won't. They usually just stay right where they are in their lost estate. So we have to go to them. That's what we have to do as church. And we don't sit around hoping that somehow coins are going to roll out into the light. They don't. They just sit there under the dirt. And they stay hidden until somebody goes and finds them. And so that's why we go to them. That's why we as Christians go to them. That's who we are as a church and who we want to become more of. I mean, we ourselves have been where others have been. You can read the book of Titus to remind yourself there. But we ourselves have been where others have. We've been sinners in the same category. And a life lived without Christ, a life lived without hope. And you know, somebody searched for us. Somebody talked to you. At least somebody found me. Somebody sought out my life. Most likely, most of the people here, somebody sought you out. And they talked to you about Jesus. You see, true spirituality just does this naturally. It seeks out lost people to find them. So befriend sinners. Keep getting to know more and more of them and spend quality time with them. And be clear with them. Let your holiness of life and the integrity of your teaching attract them. You know, that's what Jesus did. And they were attracted to him. And make the gospel clear for people. Now, don't be afraid to be clear. Because the salvation experience, the whole thing, it's not, it's not a humanly contrived thing anyway. It's going to be God's spirit at work in them. So make the gospel clear. And maybe the day of clarity will come where it becomes a great day of joy like we see in Luke 15. And when this happens, make sure you tell the rest of us the parable says, because we want to share in the joy. We want to hear your story about somebody who came to faith in Jesus Christ, and then we can all rejoice together. Now, perhaps there are some of us here this morning, I know many of you are tracking with me, but some of us maybe need to renew our commitment to a lifestyle of making connections with people and associating with people who need Jesus. And if you'd like help in your personal evangelism development, I'd be glad to talk with you. I also know Joey would be glad to talk to you. And he's probably much better at it than me. And so he's going to be in the back. And so if you'd like to find out how you could befriend people better, I would really encourage you to talk to him about how you can do that. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you for telling these parables. Holy Spirit, we praise you for making them part of Scripture through the writing of Luke. 
that it is your holy command to us as your church to be following after your example, Lord Jesus, and pursuing sinners for joy, for their joy, for our joy, for heaven's joy, for your joy, to fulfill the purpose for which you came and died on a cross and were raised to glory. Lord God, may you increase our joy and push us and move us and keep us from just hoping that lost sheep are going to find their own way home or somehow that lost coins are just going to pop out from the dust. But give us the passion and the creativity and the drive to spend time with people and find those who want you. We pray all these things for a greater joy in heaven and a greater joy at Calvary Church. Amen.